afternoon, I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're talking about Governor Patrick's political career by way of what he's done for black citizens in the Bay State. A new report out of the Trotter Institute finds Governor Patrick has successfully represented black interests without alienating his broad support across the state. Joining me to talk through this report are Ravi Perry and Kelly Bates. Ravi Perry wrote this report. He's also a professor of political science at Clark University. Kelly Bates is our political contributor and the executive director of the Access Strategies Fund. Welcome back, you two. Thank Good you, to Kelly. be here. Uh, Ravi, let's start with you. So the, the key point of, of this report is that he's managed uh, two constituencies that, you know, are hard to manage or some people thought they would be hard to manage. And that is um, his black citizen constituency and then everybody else, <laughs> which is the job that he signed up for, by the way, I just want to point out. But, uh, <laughs> but why is this a big deal? <laughs> well, it's a big deal because as scholars, we have um, had a hard time really finding examples uh, that we could quantify and uh, qualify with uh, with methodological data that demonstrates that you can, as a minority politician, in this case an African-American politician, represent minority interests while you govern a majority population. And uh, what we find in Governor Patrick's case is that he absolutely, in fact, has been successful. And he's really the only uh, state level, uh, the highest ranking, in other words, uh, African-American politician uh, to date, uh, other than some preliminary analyses that some are doing, like myself on President Obama and his first term, you know, obviously yet to be concluded. Uh, but he's the highest ranking uh, African-American official to date that we can, that we have a full term for which we can actually analyze on what um, he hasn't been able to do. And, and it's historic because it says two things. One, you can run and win in a state that is only has 7% of black population and still represent black interests and not alienate yourself with uh, white voters, which is important. People forget about Massachusetts that for uh, many, many years, uh, I think 16 years prior, we had Republican governors in this state. And so this is not a, a liberal hotbed uh, state as many in the national media often uh, uh, characterize the state as. And so uh, that it's interesting that he's been able to do this and, and, and still maintain some significant support. That, that, so that says something about um, him. But it also says something as well about the, the theory. And the theory is that um, if you're a minority politician, you have to de-emphasize race in order to A, get elected, and B, stay in office. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have found that uh, this is a theory that is losing some significance. And there are a host of examples of kind of what some people have called a third class or a new wave of black politicians. Well, before you go, really I don't want you to go that. down that path just yet, but uh, but you're, you made your point that, that, that he can win and be successful and achieve some things for a black constituency without uh, having to, you know, give up everything. But, mm -hmm. but before we go further, uh, and I turn to Kelly for her response, I want to be clear about what do you mean by quote-unquote, black interest? Uh, that's a great question. So a black interest is an interest that has a disproportionate impact on the African-American community. The reality is African-Americans have the same interest, if you look at national polling data, as every other major uh, group in this country. We, we care about jobs, education, etc. But what makes them black interest is because we are disproportionately, in some cases, negatively affected by them. And as a result, I, I codify them as black. Okay. So give me an example just just so I, we're all on the same page. Well, an example, for example, um, it would be education, mm -hmm. where uh, you can say that education is a black interest because we know that education is really the um, op opportunity equalizer for many in the black community and that without access to education, making it affordable and having completed those degrees, many African-Americans uh, would not be, particularly in the middle class, 
uh, in the socioeconomic status that they are today. And so it's a black interest because without successful educational initiatives, policies, programs um, by our elected officials, for example, then uh, African-Americans would not be wherever they are today in, in terms of progress. So closing that loop, then, if, if, if Governor Patrick has uh, pushed through some policies that uh, impact uh, the access to boost access for minority students, then therefore he has served a black interest as well as interests of other people in exactly. the Commonwealth. All right. So, Kelly, uh, how do you respond to the overall, you know, take of this report that Governor Patrick has gone a different way, but he's managed to serve the black interest as well as the rest of the Commonwealth. I have found this report very illuminating because this is a question that we talk a lot about in the black political community in terms of how successful has the governor been in representing black interests. And you know my background is working with uh, black political activists, uh, black community organizers, black leaders of nonprofit community organizations, and black voters. And it's interesting because I think a lot of them would grade Governor Patrick maybe around six or a seven in terms of that. Um, this with report, ten being the highest, with ten being the highest. Mm-hmm. And you also have to remember that they are they are comparing him to other politicians. So, for example, even though they have a uh, a challenging history. They look at someone like a Senator Diane Wilkerson and a, a former city councilor Chuck Turner, albeit in very different positions, mm-hmm. granted, who were very explicitly politicians who focused on racial justice and focused on policies that benefited the black community very explicitly. And so they do do a comparison, whereas the governor, you know, has been in a, a much different position where he's had to govern an entire state in a very difficult, difficult climate. So they would probably put him in a they'd probably put them in a, a higher you know, number, like mm-hmm. a nine or ten. And maybe someone like Governor Patrick is a six or seven because they don't necessarily have the data mm-hmm. that, um, you know, our author of this report has that would show very concretely the policies that he has um Put forth for the black community. So they look at, um, they, they certainly, there's a likability for him. Uh, they certainly have seen some of his accomplishments for the black community, namely, for example, what he did around criminal records changes, um, his focus on public education, his focus around um, housing and homelessness. But they, they a lot. If you asked the average black mm-hmm. voter, they we wouldn't necessarily be able to name some of those policies. So I think this report is very important to have out in the public because I don't think people would point to some of these successes. I don't think they actually know about it. It's it's how people view him and what they've seen. They saw in his initial term a focus on casinos. Mm-hmm. They saw a focus on, um, you know, jobs, but they saw a focus on biotech or tech tech jobs. Mm-hmm. These kinds of policies that we're about to pull out and talk about, I don't think people are as aware of. Mm. And that comes back to something that the statement that you make in your report, Ravi, which is about his being uh, governing from a deracialized position. Uh, Explain what you mean by that. What's deracialization when it comes to a Governor Patrick and how he has put forth certain policies? Well, uh, in racial politics, which I study, most scholars have found that minority politicians fit into one of only two camps. Either they are racialized politicians where they significantly, explicitly identify um, policies and programs that might benefit a particular racial group, and they are very explicit about that in in doing so. Uh, Some examples that come to mind, like Maynard Jackson in Atlanta, fighting for uh, uh, for minority contracting respective to the airport in Hartsville, Jackson, now International Atlanta Airport, um, or or Carl Stokes in Cleveland, for example. Um, Then you have deracialized examples, which came apart in the 1980s. And deracialization was first defined uh, in the mid-1970s and essentially uh, was limited to the campaign context where we were saying, well, how is it can African-Americans, in this case, actually run in majority white jurisdictions and win. Well, 
the theory was that they're going to have to significantly de-emphasize the significance of race in order to gain white support. And so that became uh, deracialization, conducting a campaign in a stylistic fashion, as goes the definition by McCormick and Jones um, in, in their classic work in the 1970s, which says that uh, you are significantly avoiding race-specific issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and some examples are, some claim Andrew Young fit in that category in Atlanta, although I slightly disagree former with that. Former mayor. Former mm-hmm. mayor Andrew Young, yes. Mm-hmm. S- some would say that uh, the first African-American mayor and the modern uh, governor of the modern era, Douglas Wilder in Virginia, fit that uh, framework as well. And, and there are a host of others um, that came along in the 80s and 90s that, that seemed to have suggested that this was the way to go in order to be successful as an African-American politician. Um, What that simply says is that if you then look at a politician's rhetoric or their policy programs or their initiatives uh, on the campaign trail, however you view them, that they should be uh, not talking about race specifically. You will not hear terms such as black or African-American or or Caucasian or Latino, they would be framing issues in a broader way rhetorically, but also in terms of their policies, they would be introducing policies that do not have a particular targeted benefit to a specific community as well. Okay. Uh, and, and that's what deracialization is. And of course, as the, as the report finds, is that I, I do think that he, per, uh, Governor Patrick, perhaps ran as a deracialized candidate. In other words, he does fit a deracialized candidate, but as a governor, as someone who is now governs the state and has done so now for almost two terms, um, that that has uh, his record there does not fit that racialization, mm. deracialization dichotomy. Um, well, so to your point then, Kelly, if folks of color are not recognizing his policies, would that not be because he's subsumed his rhetoric into the broader context, as Ravi has very carefully explained what directional, directionalization means? Uh, yes, I think <laughs> so. And, you know, for example, when he when he was in trouble a little bit running for reelection, he had to go back and really recreate what his accomplishments were. And he had to communicate them. That was the necessary strategy for him to win. And his accomplishments and the accomplishments he focused on were pretty broad and things like bringing, you know, wind energy to the Cape, you know, things like that, as opposed to focusing on some of the other kinds of policy changes that he made that benefited the black community. So I think there's certainly a lack of just understanding and appreciation for some of the work that he's done. Um, I do think, you know, he talks about these candidates who are more, excuse me, the politicians who are deracialized. What I've seen from Governor Patrick and what he does that still keeps black community members supportive of him, even if they don't know his successes for the black community, is he still weaves into his messaging Mm. his personal story, meaning I get you. You know, he'll talk about growing up in Chicago and growing up poor, and it's all code that black folks know. You know, it's Mm. like he's talking my experience. Mm. We didn't have nothing. You know, Mm. they get that. Um, He also will tailor his message sometimes when he, he is speaking um, amongst the black community. He won't use the words that uh, the professor was saying is true. He won't necessarily say race or black, but he uses words that our community understands you're referring to us. And him and his wife, you know, mm-hmm. Diane Patrick, are very much a part of the fabric of the black community and attend events and are very much put themselves out there in a visible way. Um, and his and some people see in the streets and in his, uh, you know, in his conference rooms, they see other black people at high levels in government. So there are cues that he's still sending to members of the black community that says, okay, he's still paying attention to our concerns, even if they don't necessarily know all the policy victories. Well, when we come back, uh, I'm interested in talking about that, even with what you've just said, uh, Kelly, there are those at this particularly politically charged time who will say, if he says anything, You know, I was black in Chicago. It turns into you're bringing up race and it alienates a lot of folk. So, I mean, he can deracialize as much as he wants to some extent. And people just don't want to hear it, even if it's part of his story. And I'm curious about uh, Ravi and and, and Kelly, uh, how you uh, uh, look at that in light of this report. So we're talking about Governor Patrick and how he has successfully managed to represent the interest of black citizens in the Bay State 
without losing his broad support across the Commonwealth. Uh, and just a note, while we're discussing the governor, I want to address that his oldest daughter, Sarah, has been hospitalized after yeah. becoming ill. And at this time, we do not know more about her status, but reporters here at WGBH are on top of that story. Mm-hmm. So stay with us. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We love our contributors. That means you. And Comcast Internet Essentials. Internet Essentials is available to help families in need. Families with students qualified for free school lunches may be eligible for Internet Essentials. You can learn more at internetessentials.com. And Welch and Forbes, personally serving as investment advisors for New England families since 1838. Welch and Forbes, knowing wealth, knowing you. On the web at welchforbes.com. And from members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. India has become a breeding ground for drug-resistant bacteria. The overuse of antibiotics is part of the problem. Then on top of that, we have poor sanitation, half the population not having access to a toilet and defecating um, in the open. Now India's medical tourism industry is spreading those germs to patients from across the globe. India's superbugs next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. I'm Brian McCree from WGBH's Classical New England. Normally, the last week of summer is kind of a drag. So how would you like to escape to the clean, crisp air of the Swiss Alps for six days of great food, sightseeing, and incredible live classical music with plenty of time left over for shopping or just relaxing? Then join us for a Classical New England learning tour through the Swiss Alps, August 25th through September 2nd. Space is limited and time is running out. Make sure you secure your spot at wgbh.org slash learning tours. Morning Essentials. This is NPR News. Good morning from the WGBH Radio Newsroom in Boston. I'm Bob C. With A the smart choice to start your day. Bob C. and Morning Edition on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Governor Deval Patrick. A new report out of the Trotter Institute finds he's successfully represented black interests without alienating his broad support across the state. I'm joined by the author of this report, Ravi Perry. He's a professor of political science at Clark University. Also with us is our political contributor, Kelly Bates. She's the executive director of Access Strategies Fund. So we're talking about uh, Governor Patrick managing to deracialize his approach and his rhetoric uh, in order to ha- build a broad base of support. But at the same time, as your report uh, has carefully noted, he managed to support many black interests. Uh, and I just wanted to read, this is after he won in the first time in, in uh, 2006, uh, something that he said in his acceptance speech, which is a part of your report. Uh, Governor Patrick said, you are every black man, woman and child in Massachusetts and America and every other striver of every other race and kind who is reminded tonight that the American dream is for you, too. Now, that seems, Kelly, to be uh, very inclusive, everybody. But to state specifically to make an outreach to black folk was saying something coming from the deracialized approach that he's taken. And even then, uh, a lot of people said, well, why did he have to say, you know, somebody's black? Can you speak to that, both of those things, that why at that point did he manage to include black folks, do you think, in in his rhetoric? And why it becomes such a political football when he mentions it? Well, I think uh, both in the case of Governor Patrick and um, our president, who, by the way, uh, have shared similar campaign staff, who, for the most part, at the top tier have been white, although very diverse. Um, There was a certain latitude given to him and to the president in the beginning because of their historical wins. I mean, everyone understood that this was the first, the first black governor of Massachusetts and certainly in, in the presidency's case as well. So there was a latitude, I think, about acknowledging the importance and symbolism of that moment, that this was a first. And so I think you saw more of that rhetoric early on, and I think the report does back that up. Um, I've seen less of that um, as time has gone on. And it is always a political football because you, you know, certainly you want to acknowledge 
the presence of race. Um, you know, as a black politician, if you have an understanding of, you know, the way the world works and the, the various disparities that affect your community, you cannot hide them at the same time you raise an issue like that. And there's going to always be a segment of white voters and maybe some black voters, too, who want to understand why can't you just be colorblind in your analysis? Well, you can't be colorblind in your analysis because, you know, Governor Patrick well knows that there are disparities. I mean, if you just look at employment in the black community, it's, you know, it's twice as bad. And so he he's aware of that and he understands that. But he's picking the moment and the time to talk about something. You know, President Obama's speech on race, you know, was was something that he probably didn't hope he would have to do. But because of the surrounding context, he felt like he had to seize that moment. But again, that wasn't something that was a proactive approach. And in fact, my understanding, a lot of the people who surrounded the campaigns of the governor and the president, you know, would push them back sometimes and say, you know, maybe you don't want to go there. And they do have a knowledge base about what the voters will understand. At the same time, you, you, when you, don't let someone be them full, be their full selves as a politician. And everybody brings their culture and their perspective to the table. You do lose something. And I often wonder what has the governor lost or the president lost at times on a personal basis or in terms of their connection with other black Americans when they distance themselves. And um, it's a very, very tough balance, a very, very tough balance. And it's a winning strategy to be more um, deracialized. So it's a very, very, you know, difficult thing that they have to deal with. On the other hand, I think the key is making sure you act when necessary. And when there's just such clear ways that you can make an impact in the black community, you have an opportunity. There may not be someone else there who has that eye that you have. And I think around issues like reforming the criminal records laws and making it easier for formerly incarcerated people to get jobs and taking that, you know, thing off the employment applications that says, have you been arrested or convicted? That was very important. I mean, the governor understood that the black community wanted that. But also, let me say, by the way, he was pushed to do a lot of these things. Let, let, let me remind um, you know, us that a lot of these things, he, he, he wasn't really coming out of the gate supporting. The black community got frustrated after that first year when they saw the focus on casinos and transportation, you know, consolidation of of his administration. And wait, what about us? Like, we've been waiting for so long to have someone like you in here. We we expect and demand that you pay attention to our community. That's when they really started to focus on him around the strategy around criminal records and public education. And he felt like he had to do something, especially as he neared his reelection campaign, because frankly, he knew that he need he still needed those black voters as much as he needed the white voters. So, you know, he he did a calculus, and I'm sure his campaign did too, to say, you know, wait a second, we, we now need to start delivering some things for the black community and letting them know we're delivering those things. That's my guest, Kelly Bates. Uh, she's uh, executive director of the Access Strategies Fund and our political contributor. So Ravi, um, Kelly has brought up a couple of issues that a lot of black folks were quite upset about, like around the casinos and most recently around the MBTA, because uh, any number of studies have demonstrated that the a lot of the ridership are persons of color, specifically African-American people who need that to get to work and other issues. So this is a big deal. And he has very much stepped out of that and said, I'm going to let the legislature do what the legislature does if they decide to do something but has not, you know, spoken up in the way that some would like him to, to say, you know, really, this is, this is a definite impact on a certain com- community, and I'm concerned about it. How do you respond to that in light of your report, which is overwhelmingly positive? Well, he might be uh, respond- choosing not to respond publicly, but is responding in other legislative ways that, uh, that we don't really, frankly, pay much attention to. Part of my report, I emphasize the significant number of legislative introductions, the bills that he, his office wrote uh, that he sends to the general court, the House's the House and, and State Senate, um, uh, in respect to black interest. And only three of those got passed. And so that means that 15 to 20 of them mm-hmm. did not actually get passed, and they're still sitting in committee. They have not been taken up. There, a vote has not uh, occurred on many of them. And 
I think that his strategy is often to fight those battles um, with the legislature, uh, which ironically, again, a Democratic reg- legislature for the most part, uh, fight those battles um, in the uh, n- in the framework of the legislature's uh, po- politics and not necessarily in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that is where uh, those of us who are not on, on Beacon Hill um, perhaps feel as though he is distancing himself. But I would argue that if we pay attention to what he is doing and how he is communicating to the legislature, and if we find there that he is not then responding to those issues, then that is something that then we put we should perhaps uh, bring up more clearly in in the public eye. But in many cases, uh, in issues that uh, many African Americans feel as though he has been uh, deaf on, he in fact has actually been very strong on. But uh, he sent those uh, those legislative introductions uh, to the people who need to sign them, and they have not. Uh, um, have them come up for a vote, and, well, and, and that's he, an inter- that's an interesting yeah. question about party politics mm. because it, this is uh, a, a, a clearly a democratic ge- right. ge- general yeah. court that yeah. we have here in in uh, Massachusetts, as it's called, and um, the fact that many of these uh, bills that his office and that he himself has have drafted and uh, brought forth that have particular target benefits for African Americans have not been actually uh, even put to the floor for a vote uh, is concerning. Okay. Yeah, and at the same time, um, you know, we're painting a rosy picture here, but I, you know, I always, uh, I think about what are some classic race issues uh, around the state and around the country. You know, let's look at racial profiling, for example, uh, what happened to our young Trayvon Martin in Florida. There is a bill pending right now in the Massachusetts legislature that would, would basically put the laws, put a law on the books like Florida for people to be able to basically shoot to kill. Right. It's um, another stand your ground, a kind of stand your ground. Exactly. Right. And, you know, if, let me tell you, if Senator Diane Wilkerson were here, I mean, that, that we would have known, first of all, most voters don't even know that mm-hmm. that law was, was pending in the legislature. If Senator Diane Wilkerson were here, the black community would have known about it and would have been on top of it. That's something that a Governor Patrick should be paying attention to and should be raising. I mean, it's, it, I, I do believe and I do have I don't want to have unreasonable expectations for a black politician, but I would hope that someone like him would would take the lead and say, wait a second, this is my state. <laughs> and I want to raise the consciousness of the state about this issue. He is a civil rights attorney after all. So I, I think he could do more, frankly, and has the expertise to do more to come out on issues that he has a knowledge base around. And frankly, he knows his community cares about. Well, regarding I, that issue, he actually yeah. has said that he uh, is against that, and if it came to his desk, he would veto it. I thought he said that with regard to three strikes. I wasn't sure he said this about racial profiling. I'm pretty sure he did say Okay, that. very good. I mean, uh-huh. he's been very quiet on that. And also, um, the other thing is our community cares a lot about the kind of social services that we need. Uh, public assistance, public benefits, uh, public education, which, by the way, is funded through tax resources. Governor Patrick has been so quiet, as all the elected officials have, about how to raise new revenue in our state to support the needs of all communities Mm -hmm. who are struggling, and in particular, black communities who are struggling. I think some of the black voters that I know that have concerns about him are very, very deeply concerned about the fact that he has not taken a stand on how we raise real revenues, like, for example, uh, raising income taxes, for example. He's done things like the sales tax and little things, but frankly, that does not cover the base. Now, granted, it's a very difficult time and a very difficult climate to try to get, uh, you know, tax policy up there on Beacon Hill. But, you know, at some point, someone's got to have the courage to do it. And the black community is kind of looking and saying, well, when are you going to do something about this? You're in your second term. And, you know, frankly, now's the time. Uh, People are really struggling. They're watching to see if he's going to take any leadership on this, especially after the legislators are reelected in 2012. Um, I've heard that they may start taking up this issue again. And I think people are going to be looking at that. What is the danger of or if there is any, you know, he's on his way out. uh, He'll have probably some other extensive political career. But of these deracialized candidates, and it should be made clear that there are many others around the country, not just President Obama. You referenced Gwen Ifill's book, The Breakthrough, Politics Mm -hmm. and Race in the Age of Obama, in which she identifies a number of people around Mm -hmm. the country. Uh, Former Congressman, Alabama Congressman Arthur Davis, uh, Cory Booker, who's the the, uh, mayor of Newark. These are 
examples of people, as she defined it in her book, of a new kind of politician who is uh, black or of color, who first does outreach outside of the base and then turns to the base to get elected. Whereas all the civil rights politicians are ones from that era built the base and then did the outreach. And that's a very different perspective. It speaks to your deracialization. I'm trying to say this. I mentioned this last week in a brief conversation about this report that uh, in my visits to my local McDonald's, I happen to have heard on a couple of occasions a group of men, black and Latino, who are very mad at Governor Patrick, at Felix Arroyo, at Tito Jackson. They identified all of the politicians of color because they have not, in their opinion, articulated in a way that they can hear that you're doing something on my behalf. Um, colorful language used, but <laughs> but very emphatic about being unhappy. And I wonder if there, I hear you take your point, Ravi, about his doing stuff behind the background, but is there a damage about disconnecting with the community uh, if you don't in some way say, hey, this one right here goes to one specific group, and I got to say something about it because I know the experience, to your point, Kelly. Mm-hmm. Is there a damage, a, a, a distancing I, there? I think there is. Mm-hmm. And although, let me just go back to your example, what's interesting, and again, I don't have the data to back this up. Maybe the professor can help me. I bet you a lot of those guys or women will probably vote for them again mm-hmm. because we still want our folks in. It's an interesting dynamic. But that being said, I think there's a personal loss, personal danger, and a, a policy danger. The personal danger is I really think – Something very um, deep happens to a politician and a black politician if they do feel strongly about black issues and they don't have enough courage or don't bring them up to the forefront the way that they want. I think, you know, it's 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 got to be something you think about. It's got to be something that you question yourself about and and wrestle with. And so I think that can have an impact just on how you see yourself. I think it has a policy impact, though, because if you don't, he may indeed have made these policy overtures toward the black community. But if his administration and his staff don't hear him talking about the black community explicitly, when they go to implement those policies, they're not going to necessarily be looking at the racial impact of those policies or or implementing them in a way that, that has an eye toward racial mm-hmm. equity. So I think that can be problematic because you take your cues from your boss. And if your boss is not singing that tune, well, maybe you don't need to sing that tune. Mm-hmm. So I think it can have a a danger in how the policies are actually implemented and on the soul of the person. And, um, you know, Senator Diane Wilkerson or a counselor Chuck Turner probably didn't have to wrestle with that personal conflict. They had to wrestle with other ones and people saying, you're not effective because all you do is talk about those mm. folks. And I, mm. I just know you don't have a bigger interest. So I think it can have um, an impact. But it's interesting, even with all the the, the anger, frustration that someone might have directed toward a candidate of color, in my experience, those same voters will go, mm, yeah, but I'm going to go back and vote them back in because they're still paying maybe a little bit more attention than others. And the mirror effect, people just really want to see themselves there. Well, and I, want, I want to clarify something. What, what my report finds is that Governor Patrick, in fact, runs and and as a candidate deracialized, but in fact, evidence suggests that he governs um, as someone who governs in the interests of African Americans because he can successfully frame them as interests that matter to everyone, but, which but I'm is talking doing about two it. things. It's I got saying, that part, but I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm addressing the fact that uh, to, to folks of color, right. they don't hear it as articulated, directed toward them. Right, and so so mm-hmm. that actually does have, uh, kind of piggybacking on what Kelly was saying, that does have a actual political problem. We have actually found recently that deracialized um, um, candidates who also govern as deracialized politicians, they then tend to now, uh, we in the 21st century, are, tend to be losing actual election. Hmm. Uh, Adrian Fenty in D.C. lost handedly his his Democratic primary, um, and and that was largely the reason. Uh, Arthur Davis lost handedly um, the, his his effort to be governor in Alabama. Um, what we're finding is that the deracialization effect, which has been demonstrated in the 80s and 90s to be so important in order to elect an African-American candidate, that running as a deracialization no, as a deracialization candidate, 
for re-election actually uh, limits your ability to, to actually be elected a second time. Um, and that is something that is that is a fairly unique finding, which is why what Governor Patrick has done is so significant because he has not ra- deracialized I, and, and this report's uh, finding um, as a governor, or has he de- nor has he deracialized, but rather he has found a way to articulate the needs and interests of African Americans uh, in ways that allow whites to actually understand what those interests are and and still support him for it because they don't feel alienated as a result, and allow blacks to feel counted and accounted for um, in his public policy initiatives. That is a new. Uh, type of governing strategy that uh, is that does not fit into the deracialization or racialization boxes, so to speak. Um, I have called it um, universalizing black interests as interests that matter to everyone, and that is uh, it's borrowed from uh, a targeted universalistic framework. Um, that was really uh, out of the legal scholarship of John Powell, who's now at Berkeley. And, and, it, and it shows that it actually works. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what's significant about it. And so if people are not hearing it, what I would encourage people to do is to uh, actually pay attention to some of the transparency of these um, many cases of these minority politicians, particularly Governor Patrick. Governor Patrick has on his website all of his policy introductions and legislative introductions, executive orders, etc. It's there for you to read. And essentially, uh, a part of the project, what I did was go through that record and, and in addition to receiving information from his office of what he has attempted to do in terms of the respect of the black interests, and then the story becomes different. So I think it's important that education be, uh, be understood as a tool to inform African Americans that if they do still think that their minority politicians are not representing their interests for them first, frankly, to do their homework to make sure that that is the case. Because it might be just that the media is not reporting it. Mm. It mm. might, and that is separate from the fact that of whether or not the politician is actually doing something about it. What I have found, for example, is that Governor Patrick has introduced roughly one policy or initiative or program or implemented one in the interest of African Americans every two months while in office. That's pretty significant given the population of blacks in this state is only 7%. That I think then speaks to, if you know, given what Ravi's just said, uh, Kelly, that um, Governor Patrick's a pretty talented politician. I mean, you know, people look at this and they think, okay, well, that looks like it's easy to do. Actually, it's not easy to do. Yeah. So he's balanced on a narrow beam here, and he's managing to stay up there. Yeah, uh, no, he's he's, <laughs> he's incredibly skillful. Um, he's very artful in how he works with the legislature. He is very good at being a public speaker and bringing the community behind him. And he was really smart at one point. Him and his campaign went right before his reelection campaign. They were very worried about whether the black community was going to come out and vote for him. And they needed those voters. And um, they made a concerted effort to make it clear what the accomplishments were in the black community. They they hired a lot of campaign staff who had deep relationships in the black community and really reversed what was starting to be a serious disappointment in him from the black community. Because remember what I was saying before, in those early stages, people weren't really seeing what they wanted to see. They had to put a lot of pressure on him. So he's very skillful, and, and, and the people around him have been very skillful as well to recognize Okay, there's a, there's a time to uh, have more universal rhetoric here, and then there's a time to really kick in the gear and let people know what we're actually doing. No, he, he's, he's very skillful in that way. He's also a good learner. You know, he um, took a lot of uh, – beatings is too strong of a word. Um, but, you know, he, he had to work with the speaker and the Senate president, who are very strong figures, and really tried to present himself as a formidable you know, leader. And he he accomplished that. I mean, I still think that, uh, in my personal opinion, that uh, um, Senator Murray, out of all three of them, is is probably the strongest. Um, but, you know, he's had to really learn. And mm-hmm. um, he didn't come to politics knowing politics. I mean, the black community did. I remember when, when he came to speak at ABCD, which is a large nonprofit that provides public assistance to low-income communities. He was just starting to come out and say, I'm going to run for governor. No one 
No one in Massachusetts, and I mean, these are political players, knew who he was. Who is this guy? You know, who is who is this guy? Where does he come from? And, you know, they knew he was African-American. That was interesting. They knew he might be fairly moderate to left. They weren't sure. But, you know, he also came out of working for Coca-Cola and corporate America. But he was also a civil rights attorney. And he worked for Clinton. He had a lot of proving to do, and he went all over the state and ran a very grassroots campaign and hired really good people. And that campaign plan was the campaign plan for President Barack Obama. So, you know, this this shows you that both he as a candidate and his campaign operation were highly sophisticated and still are. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much to the two of you. We've been talking about Governor Patrick, about how he's been able to represent the interest of black citizens without compromising his broad support. I've been speaking with Ravi Perry, a professor of political science at Clark University, and our political contributor, Kelly Bates. She's executive director of the Access Strategies Fund. Thanks a lot, you two. Coming up, we check in with Occupy the Hood. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Boston Ballet School, presenting Next Generation, showcasing students from Boston Ballet School's pre-professional program, accompanied by NEC's Youth Philharmonic Orchestra, May 16th at 7 at the Boston Opera House, bostonballet.org, and Celebrity Series of Boston. My primary concern is box office. Jack Wright, Director of Marketing and Communications. When we make GBH a part of our overall marketing plan, it's the difference between a piece of advertising in print or 60 seconds somewhere versus an entity whose existence is backing you up. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. Morning Essentials. This is NPR News. Good morning from the WGBH Radio Newsroom in Boston. I'm Bob C. with the local stories we're following. A smart choice to start your day. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick will propose an overall hike in state Bob C. and Morning Edition on 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio. Get ready because the 47th annual WGBH auction is off and running. Act fast to take advantage of incredible deals on home furnishings, electronics, jewelry, vacations, even a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. And every winning bid supports the programs that keep you going. See the full list of items and place your bid at auction.wgbh.org. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth online at wgbhnews.org. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. Occupy Boston has had a spring awakening, protesting the MBTA and more recently Bank of America, but Occupy the Hood never went to sleep. Joining me to talk about the latest developments coming out of the movement is Jamal Crawford. He's the leader of Occupy the Hood and the editor and publisher of Blackstonian. Jamal Crawford, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. So the last time you were here, uh, you were here with one of the guys from Occupy Boston and it was uh, shortly after a kind of partnership rally, uh, coming together rally in October, and there was going to be much more joint activity. But that went away. Um, that was never really uh, <laughs> our, our focus. You know, uh, as I stated then and as I've been kind of clear about the whole time, uh, you know, we've been around before anybody was talking about occupying anything and that we were not going to leave what we know is tried and true uh, uh, and, and our methods of organizing and our, our methods of, of, of uh, outreach to people. Uh, we weren't, you know, uh, uh, too ready to just abandon everything that we had learned and experienced uh, for the favor of this of this new 
thing called Occupy, which, uh, you know, is quite fantastic. And at one time, so was the Pet Rock. But these are how these things, you know, kind of kind of shape out. So uh, over the time that we tried to work together, there was a lot of tension uh, dealing with racism, white supremacy and white privilege, uh, some other issues as well, treatment of women uh, and also drug and alcohol abuse. And it just became plain to us that it was time to kind of... uh, separate but i met some some great people there some very dedicated people and they've you know been busy with whatever it is that they feel as though is important and it needs attention and as have we um the term uh occupy the hood though is new uh even though you've been a community organizer and been doing and the kinds of, of of programs and projects that really goes under that umbrella have been ongoing the the actual occupy the hood terminology is fairly new so You've you have some of that Occupy movement, if you will, as a part of what you're doing now. Well, uh, the thing is that when when we came and approached that term and that concept, we recognized it for what it is. It's a tool, mm-hmm. uh, something to be able to be be, be used uh, uh, to to capture new attention and 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 to kind of galvanize some of this energy that that you know had everybody uh, really up in a, in a, in, a, in a fury across, all across the country. So what we did is uh, with that occupied terminology, that's all we did is we took the name. Mm-hmm. Everything else is stuff that we had already been doing and 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 will continue to do uh, and. In in another year or so, there may be another name that is the the super sexy name, uh, and 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 we'll use that too, uh, because it's just a tool for organization and mobilization. Uh, when Occupy Boston went on hiatus, uh, what were you focused on under Occupy the Hood? Uh, well, I mean, you know. I, Hiatus. I, I wasn't even aware. Uh, well, yeah, and during the winter, I mean, when the kids oh, broke down oh, and all of that. And, oh, you know, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, we fed people. Uh, just in the past couple of months, we fed over 500 people. We fed hot meals. Uh, we've been conducting a food drive since November 11th of last year. Uh, we've organized several forums in different areas. Some which have been, uh, you know, dealing with some of the legislation that's been out, the three strikes, the stand your ground law, uh, as well as other forums as well. Uh, the attack on black men and boys, kind of dealing with some of the stuff behind the. Trayvon Martin situation and others. Uh, you know, we also brought world-renowned historian Renoko Rashidi here, and actually in June we're bringing the last poets. So we've done a, a combination of stuff from, you know, community service stuff um, to actually uh, events to raise, you know, culture and awareness, uh, and, and then also to the political stuff in the state house and conducting forums to educate and engage people. Um, I don't think it's any secret that uh, May 1st, when the spring awakening of Occupy uh certainly in Boston and other cities around the country, a number of critics, a little bit more vocal of that movement, saying, okay, guys, we get it, but what are you going to do now other than build a camp? Um, As you said, Occupy the Hood has always been engaged in many activities. But I wonder as you go forward, if people get sort of the overall sense of what the Occupy, from your perspective, movement was supposed to be about. Uh, well, for us, once again, we haven't had a lot of those critiques because we've been tied into issues that are, you know, more uh, grounded. Uh, but for instance, you know, nationally, Occupy the Hood and many other uh, tried and true organizations from across the country uh, just did this thing where they converged on D.C. to bring up the issue of political prisoners. Uh, Occupy from Mumia, but it also had a broader focus with all uh, political prisoners. And there's stuff like that that is never going to go away. Uh, stuff like dealing with the violence in our communities is never going to go away. So I really, uh, it's very difficult for me to figure out what Occupy means to these different people. Is it, is it you know, these are the, the, the issues that came up during it. Is it an actual occupation, an encampment, uh, tents and all that? Is it these, you know, uh, forums or, or these uh, rather marches or rallies that are, you know, going to snarl traffic and disrupt and, you know. Uh, so we early on knew that those were not strategies or, or concepts that we were going to deal with. So once again, we just kept it uh, with what we were comfortable with and what our experience has shown us has worked and, and produced the most tangible results. So who is the 99%? Well, you know, uh, that is also of of a question because, you know, um, I know that in that spirit, I think that the term itself is to kind of evoke some sort of brotherhood and commonality. But I didn't feel very 99-ish when I was down there. Uh, I actually, you know, felt much like I felt in larger society. I felt dismissed. I felt marginalized. And in many cases, I felt despised and resented. Uh, so that whole camaraderie of the 99, uh, I think that, you know, that's it's kind of rhetoric and it's used often when it's convenient. 
convenient, but I don't know how true it is because what I experienced there was the same white privilege, white supremacy and racism and sexism uh, that I've experienced, you know, uh, in, in, in society at large. So oftentimes, uh, you know, people say we have to be careful uh, when we're uh, fighting against someone to not become like the people we're fighting. So oftentimes I think that while the 99% wants to pull the, the higher moral card, in many ways, oftentimes they, they conduct themselves much like the 1% that they're pointing the finger at. Is this a sad situation from your perspective? I mean, I, I'm, I take your point. You, you're going to continue to work no matter what the new name of the movement may be because you have some, some focus on and what needs to be happening in your community and what your community's needs are. Uh, you know, but from, you know, just a larger standpoint, is it kind of sad that, you know, one of the essences, which was to bring people together of all of this, uh, has, has in this case actually not happened? <laughs> uh, not for me. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, when I was called to first go down to the encampment, I mean, I, I had no big, you know, expectation that all of a sudden we were all going to join hands and, you know, sing Kumbaya barefoot okay. in the rain. <laughs> so, I mean, no, for me, this is pretty much what was expected and, and a prediction based on what I knew of people who had not been involved in other movements, had no binding philosophy or foundational structure. There was no accountability or leadership structure. So I, I pretty much knew that there were going to be these problems and breakdowns. And uh, and then, too, you know, the youth of the moment, you know, so that a lot of these uh, people are uh, part of me. I don't want to be dismissive or condescending, but a lot of them are just, you know, young kids. And, uh, you know, it, first it, it, time out in a, in a quote movement or in a in a, in a social justice and, and activity and mm -hmm. very, very green. Mm hmm. And very and oftentimes too naive to the ways of the world. So, for instance, coming from that place of white privilege, you're a kid from the burbs and here you meet black guy, black nationalist guy from Roxbury with 20 years of organizing under him. And, you know, how the twain shall never meet, uh, so to speak. Uh, what what would you like to see Occupy the Hood um, become? And I recognize that it, I take your point about the name could change. The work remains the same. But. As you look, you know, forward in the next couple of years and people are at least are uh, seem open to hearing about some issues, uh, you know, uh, Bank of America protests, the foreclosures, all these kinds of issues that have been there. But it seemed that at least for a moment in time, Occupy brought attention in a more national way and certainly Occupy the Hood. Uh, did as well. So what would you like to see continue to happen? Uh, basically, you know, what has been happening, which is Occupy the Hood has kind of become like a, a galvanizing force, uh, like coalition building. And, and many people who are from various different, uh, you know, uh, genres, if you will, of the revolution, whether it's, you know, the political prisoner people or whether it's the, uh, you know, people who are for the green stuff and doing community gardening and whatnot, or if it's the folks who care about education or criminal justice, uh, kind of the Occupy the Hood banner has been able to um, allow several people from different states, from different stations of life with different issues uh, to work together under one umbrella. So I would like to see that umbrella get solidified, formalized, actually uh, be solid as an organization and legitimized so that uh, there there's more of an opportunity to generate resources, purchase a building, maybe have mm -hmm. offices in different cities that will be able to uh, be even more conducive to that type of coalition building. All right. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. We've been talking about Occupy the Hood. I've been speaking with Jamal Crawford. He's the leader of Occupy the Hood and the editor and publisher of Blackstonian. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter. Or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Jane Pippick, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.